Well, good morning. Uh, so we're going to be in Ephesians 5, where we looked at the scripture reading this morning, um, in God's instructions for husbands. Uh, we've talked, obviously, quite a bit about marriage roles, and we've already gone through um, lessons on husbands. And um, I've heard many times, and I think this is so true, that the best way to learn is through repetition. So hopefully by repetition, um, these lessons could just wash over our minds and our hearts and that the, the seeds that God wants planted can be cultivated and can grow in our lives. Um, just like the title of this series suggests, we're, we're learning. We're learning how to walk in wisdom with God. Um, I think God has reserved some of his most challenging instructions for wives and for husbands and for parents. Um, but they are some of the most rewarding instructions. They are some of the most beautiful instructions. And as we're challenged by these things, the humility that comes from that, I think, is, is necessary in, in such a good way to open our eyes, to depend more on God and help each other and serve each other and know what God desires for us and how he's looking to equip us to fulfill his will. Um, so just, just keep that in mind that... Um, these lessons, I think, are very challenging, but uh, those, those are things that I think we need to be careful also to embrace with as much humility as possible. So, like I said, we're looking at wisdom for husbands. Um, uh, there's one lesson a year, so we have four more lessons after this in September, October, November, and December. Um, so we just have one more lesson on um, fathers uh, next month for household instructions. Um, just like next month, and just like I've, I've said before, as I'm going to say next month, Lord willing, um, obviously it's not very exciting hearing instructions about how a husband should be loving his wife from somebody who's a newlywed, or hearing about wisdom for fathers from somebody who has yet to even have one child. Um, but I've been thinking it might be good to open up to you one of my ambitions when I teach. Um, I think it is a serious error to limit the truth of the Bible by personal experience um, in, in teaching, where I only see or I only apply or I only teach to others what maybe is just a few steps ahead of me. Just like in Ephesians 5, where God sees the whole glory of the church and is just trying to help us reach that purpose, I think a preacher, an evangelist, what Paul did himself and what he also tried to encourage Timothy and Titus to do, is as a teacher, I need to see the whole glory of God's word. And that's going to leave me convicted and humbled, and no, nobody's going to end up coming out of this lesson alive, including me, right? Um, there are things we're going to study that Eva desperately wishes I would apply better and stop neglecting. And that's going to be true, I think, for every wife in this congregation. Um, as husbands, we all, in different ways, are going to find ourselves falling very, very, very short in the things in this lesson, which is why we need helpers. Um, that's why we need mercy and encouragement. Um, I have every confidence that every husband in this congregation wants to apply these things. And I believe that every wife in this congregation wants her husband to better apply these things, right? Um, so we just need to show so much mercy and patience and humility, obviously, as we just continue to work these things out. So one last thing. Um, like I said with repetition, we're not going to be studying, I think, anything new in this lesson. It's going to be just, I think, reinforcing things we've already studied. And I think that will be very valuable as well for, for all of us. So let's go back to Ephesians 5 
And I want to read the whole section again, and then um, the whole section starting in verse 25. And um, we're going to start by looking at verses 25 through 27, where husbands are told to love their wives as Jesus loves the church. Uh, Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So just really quickly, verse 32. Um, Marriage, I think, is God's closest living illustration to the reality of Christ's relationship with his church. And I think if you really want to see what somebody truly believes about Christ and the church, just look at their diligence in marriage. Look at how they are either embracing their role or completely neglecting their role. Um, I think marriage is where the veil of self-deceit is lifted and taken away. I think husbands uh, are more familiar than anybody else with the flaws, the weaknesses, the sins of their wives. And it's the same with wives. Wives see more than anybody else the flaws, the weaknesses, the sins of their husband. Um, And so we just need to realize that in verse 32, what Paul is referencing is, this isn't just about arbitrarily giving commandments. This is about equipping individuals to embrace the parallel that exists from the very beginning that God always intended that a husband's relationship to his wife was always intended to be a one-to-one illustration of the greatest truth in all existence, Christ's relationship with his church. So back to verse 25 through 27. Um, We're going to start looking at this more as verses 25 through 27, emphasizing first spiritual leadership, and um, we'll be looking at a scripture for reference in just a moment. Um, But in verse 25... Obviously, husbands are told to take the role of Christ, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Um, So husbands are also to love the wife. And notice in verse 27, Jesus, or verse 26 rather, why did Jesus give himself up for his church? Something is only possible through that sacrifice. It's so that he might sanctify her, cleanse her, bring her to the fullness of the glory that God intended for his bride. So Jesus' sacrifice is not in the, in the end of his life. It's not just an end, right? When Jesus said, it is finished, that was the end of one side of history, right? But it was the beginning of another. And we think about that like covenants. When Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, that was the conclusion of God's work up to that point. The old covenant was over. But in a sense, it was the beginning of a new ministry, a new covenant, a new relationship that God would begin to have with people. And so husbands are able to see an example of what their role in marriage should look like like when we see Jesus. I think 
all of us learn from examples. Um, and a lot of us probably come from backgrounds where we have very bad examples that maybe influence our marriages. Um, so I really want to encourage you that just like we looked at with wives, how we looked at the fact that the world is incapable of giving us the wisdom to encourage a wife to embrace her role, we need, to, we need to apply that same principle with husbands. The world has a lot of examples of leadership, has a lot of examples of headship, it has a lot of examples of husbands, but we're not going to learn what it looks like for a husband to imitate Christ unless we are really rooting ourselves in biblical spiritual wisdom that starts with Jesus himself. So as much as there might be like helpful things we can learn in the world sometimes, um, for this lesson, I really want to root us in scripture and in Jesus' example. And I want to go to John 17. Um, in this lesson, I, I wanted to go to some areas of scripture that I find to be personally very helpful in teaching lessons on being a husband. I think they're sections that are not necessarily what would first come to your mind. But I want to put this into your mind as we're going to John 17. If husbands learn what it means to be a husband from Jesus, then how much of scripture then teaches us about what it means to be a husband? In Luke 24, at the end of Jesus' life, he said everything that was written in the Old Testament is a reflection of his character, his nature, his life, his service, his attitude. And so ultimately, the whole Bible, as long as we're learning about God and his character, Jesus brought the living character of God into human form, right? So as long as we're learning about God or learning about Jesus, we are learning then lessons about what it means to be a husband. So in John 17, Jesus has reached the end of his earthly life. He is about to be crucified. Jesus, in this prayer, summarizes, I think, his highest priorities and ambitions in his love for his church, his bride. And so I just want to briefly work through this chapter and just look at some lessons we can take from Jesus' priorities in what he was doing with his church. Let's look at verses 1 through 5. And I'll, I'll read this here um, and then mention more about what's on the board. Jesus spoke these things, lifting up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the, Father may or that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given me, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So when Jesus is talking about glorifying, you know, Father, glorify your Son, Something interesting in John's gospel, usually when Jesus is saying, like, glorify your name, or, you know, Jesus is going to be glorified, or in this prayer says, glorify your son, that would most commonly include his death and his crucifixion as well. And so Jesus, by offering himself and seeing glory in that, it's not just that Jesus did serve, it's not just that he did sacrifice himself and die, Jesus specifically inspires loyalty, not just because he did die or did serve. It's his attitude towards suffering. It's his attitude towards self-sacrifice. It's his attitude toward service, toward service. It's the love that compelled his service. It's 
his love for us. It's his understanding of God. It's, des- it's, it's his desire for people to see the love of God and understand God and find comfort in God and to see that God is worthy of connecting with and submitting to. And so Jesus didn't inspire loyalty by dominant demand. It's not just that Jesus was going around forcing people into subjection. Jesus inspires loyalty first by his attitude, but secondarily, it's his attitude towards suffering. One of the things that was accomplished in the cross, Jesus in verse 1, he saw glory through the cross. I think one of the best things a husband can do for his wife is what Jesus did through his sacrifice on the cross. To learn to see joy in trials, to see power being perfected in weakness, to see, to see emotions not as a weakness or nuisance or a burden, but as something that helps us draw closer to God and depend more on him. Jesus changed the world, not when he was busy doing a thousand things in one day, but when his hands and feet were nailed to a cross and he was rendered completely immobile. Jesus inspired loyalty by showing the world that there is glory in self-sacrifice, there is love in suffering, and God is able to heal and repair and restore and work in his greatest power when we suffer, when we are weak, and when our need is at its greatest. Um, six, verse, six through ten. So another thing really quick, this lesson, there's going to be a lot more to say about, I think, every single bullet point in this lesson. Um, so I just really just want to put these things into your mind and hopefully create more conversation and meditation out of these things. Um, so verses one through five, I know there's maybe even better things to say about it, but at least for principle, I think that's, that's sufficient to move on. So verses six through ten. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you, for the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. Jesus saw himself as a steward, not a dictator. Uh, something that might be helpful as like a parallel to this point in um, 1 Corinthians 15, 24, um, one thing that Paul writes about the resurrection and the judgment to come through the resurrection, that in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, Jesus will also hand the kingdom back to the Father. So ultimately, Jesus' entire purpose and ministry with the church, including even now in the New Covenant and its full period, Jesus is a steward of something he is going to be giving back to the Father, right? And think about how this impacted Jesus' attitude towards the church, that God is going to hold Jesus responsible for how he treats his disciples, how he loved his disciples. It liberated Jesus from having uncertainty about what to do. Just do what God says. The church belongs to him. Look for the people that God directs you towards, right? And so husbands in the same way, we are stewards of our wives. We are stewards of their condition and God expects that we treat our wives in a way that pleases him, right? And our mission as husbands is to get our wives to heaven. But not just to get us get our wives to heaven. Remember in Ephesians 5 and something we'll see at the end of chapter 17. Jesus' mission was not just to get people to the gate of heaven. 
It was to unify people as much as could be possible with God. To get them as presentable as possible, as close to the image of God as they could possibly get. And so in Ephesians 5 it says, He was seeking to present the church in all her glory, without any spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And as husbands, our goal is to present our wives to God as glorious as we can possibly present them. That is our highest priority in our relationship, is spiritual leadership and encouraging our wives' faith and holiness. One, one more thing on this. Um, Jesus, because of this, gave him the freedom to really plug his heart into his disciples, to pour himself into them. I think the disciples, the twelve, his closest disciples, I know this might sound strange, but they were his heaviest burden, easily. Easily they were his heaviest burden. They would try his patience more than people that he would just touch and walk away from, more than people who he would heal and cast out a demon and they would leave and go somewhere else, or people that were farther away in the crowds and just not as close to Jesus through his ministry. So the disciples were Jesus' heaviest burden. Well, we're going to see through this prayer, though, they were also his greatest joy. They were the glory of his life. They were his purpose for living. And so although marriage, it does come with burdens, as husbands, we need to see those things as our greatest joy, as our purpose for living. It needs to be the glory of our lives to serve our wives. 11 through 15. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished but the son of perdition, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. So Jesus guarded his disciples. When they were with Jesus, they were indefinitely safe. Jesus protected them. He gave them security. But he also saturated them, in verse 13, with true, substantial, lasting joy in the relationship. Jesus did not neglect his disciples. When there was some issue going on among the twelve, And there were even instances where they would be arguing amongst one another of something very arrogant, which one is the greatest one among them. And they didn't want to tell Jesus about it. And Jesus would say, hey, what were you talking about along the way? And they would bring it up. Or, well, there's even one instance in the gospel where they wouldn't even bring it up then. And he initiates the rest of the teaching there about the first must become last and the greatest as uh, the the least, Um, the greatest as the servant of all. Jesus guarded the relationship. He guarded the hearts of his disciples He understood the dangers of Satan's temptations, the dangers of the condition of their hearts. Jesus understood where they were all in their relationship with God, even Judas along the way. Jesus knew exactly where he was. Jesus guarded his disciples. But um, if you look at verse 15, One of the things with Jesus being a steward, he understood the limits of his role. So something that's important in this lesson, husbands are not Jesus, we cannot be Jesus, we cannot live up to his example, and we are not God, right? 
And so Jesus did what he could within his role, but even in Jesus' role, he understood there is a huge gap where the Father is stepping in fulfilling his role, thus this prayer, and thus the habit of prayer in his ministry. So we're talking about spiritual leadership first here. Husbands need to be praying diligently for their wives. Husbands need to be praying for God to step in and do what we cannot do. I'm constantly uncertain about how to help my wife in different situations, but what I am certain about is that God understands what to do and is acting even when I'm not, even when I feel overwhelmed, or even if I feel like I've just actually completely done the wrong thing entirely. God is capable of cleaning up that mess and still guarding and protecting and bringing joy even through that, right? And so Jesus, as a steward, was entrusting everything to the Father. And that just gives so much comfort, right? Because it's not just a responsibility where you better do it right, and if you mess up at all, well, you have catastrophically failed beyond repair. That's, that's, not, that's not what we're talking about. God is loving, merciful, forgiving, patient. He picks us up from the ashes and gives us new life and restores us. And so God can heal the wounds of arguments. God can heal the wounds of lost tempers. God can heal the wounds of unkind words. But that doesn't mean we don't humble ourselves and strive to renew ourselves to guard our wives and guard our own hearts. And joy comes from investment, right? Jesus was seeking to give joy to his disciples because he invested himself into them. Again, he plugged his heart into his disciples and poured himself into them. 16 through 19. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. For Jesus to plug his heart into the disciples, he needed to unplug himself from the world. Jesus was deeply immersed in the world, right? But not in the desires of the world, not in the habits of those who did not know God, not in the attitude of people who did not know God. Jesus sanctified himself first. So look at this in verse 19. Husbands need to be holy for the sake of their wives. We do need to be holy first for God's sake, right? But I think with verse 19, it's accurate to say, just as Jesus said, for their sakes I sanctify myself. Husbands need to be holy. Husbands need to keep their heart in check. Husbands need to be motivated toward purity, sexual purity. And they need to be bringing temptation into their marriage to seek solutions within their marriage. If there's an issue that exists in your heart outside of the marriage relationship, bring the solutions into that relationship. Jesus sanctified himself first, and therefore he was equipped to sanctify his disciples and help them. I think verse 19 as well, there's, there's, I think, a lot of things we're not going to be able to fully touch on here, but Jesus helped his disciples see the utility of God's word. That it's not just nice information, it's not just laws for the, for, for the Pharisees to study, then come up with more laws and just figure out how to do everything correctly without making any mistakes. Jesus enjoyed God's word. Jesus saw utility from God's word. When he studied the Old Testament, It resulted in a life of loving and joyful service and self-sacrifice. 
So Jesus helped his disciples see the use of God's word, the comfort to be gained from his word. And when you read the New Testament epistles, you see people who profusely loved God's word and understood that there is just an incredible degree of depth and richness and wisdom to equip us for every good work. And so Jesus helped his disciples understand the importance of God's word, the beauty of God's word, the joy of God's word, and the utility of God's word. As husbands, we need to be striving to have a deep affection and joy and love and devotion to the word of God. Not just something where we come on Sundays and Wednesdays and just like hearing things from God's word that we then try to keep and meditate through the week as good as that is. We need to see God's word as our lifeblood. We need to be hungering and thirsting for righteousness, like what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. Again, I know this might mean changing habits, difficulties of application, but we're not trying to belittle Jesus' model by our own struggles. We want to acknowledge his example and then humble ourselves and strive to that. Verse 20 through 26. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus seeks perfect unity by reflecting the love God showed him first toward his bride, right? To me, that simplifies marriage. I know this might sound extremely naive and simplistic, um, but when before I married Eva, I thought a lot about everything that makes my relationship with God work, I just need to do that toward Eva now. And again, I know that sounds very simplistic and naive, but I think in scripture, that is exactly what Ephesians 5 is saying, is as simple as it is, whatever Jesus has done for us, whatever God does in his patience and wisdom, his forgiveness, his mercy, all that makes our relationship with him work, if we truly understand that, now we just reflect that in how we treat our wives. And so in verse 26, how is this unity going to be accomplished? Jesus was just reflecting the love that the Father had already been showing him. And so he just wanted the disciples to see that love, understand it, and apply it. Before we move on to the next slide, I want to summarize some of these this way. God's instructions in general, but especially within marriage, They create an infinitely greater, infinitely deeper, infinitely richer, infinitely more more joyous relationship than is ever possible otherwise. It is completely incomparable. There are times when Christians have horrible marriages and they need to really do some hard work, seek counsel, and seeking counsel is good even if our marriages are in a good place. But God can repair those things And I think a part of the motivation is 
recognizing that God has not designed marriage to be a place of ongoing tension and unresolved conflict. God can create from nothing, from ashes, from misery, infinitely greater joy than we ever think is possible. And that joy binds us both, husband and wife, closer and closer to God. Let's look at verse 28 through 33. So I think we're going to be able to move through this a little bit more briefly, even though it's a longer section, um, because we're just going to be looking at some more um, practical, maybe immediate applications here. But in verse uh, 28 through the end of the chapter, it emphasizes that a husband should love his wife as his own body. Um, Verse 29, no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the, the church. If you look in verse 33 again, nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself. So if I were to summarize that, here's how I would summarize it. Just as Jesus said, he did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. Husbands must train themselves not to think of what they are meant to get from their wives, which I think is really easy to do. Is She's supposed to be making my life easier. She's supposed to be doing this, and I wish she was submitting better, or I wish you know, she wasn't this, this, and this. Husbands are not to think that way. Um, Jesus' relationship with his disciples was not 50-50. It was 100-0. Their obligation was just follow, and Jesus 100% just gave and gave and gave. It was a giving and receiving relationship. And so a husband is not to think what he's meant to get from his wife, but what he is meant to give to his wife, right? It's a fundamental and radical change in mentality. And if we learn to think that way, we are tapping into the mind and the heart of Jesus, we see that constantly being emphasized in the New Testament. And marriage is just simply a very clear, very easy place to most clearly apply those principles. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7. So we're told as husbands to nourish and care for our wives. Um, and 1 Timothy, or 1 Thessalonians rather, 2, verse 7, translates that word as tenderly care for. First uh, Timothy 2, and I'm going to start in verse 5, and we're going to read through um, verse 8. First Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 5 through verse 8. This is this Paul reflecting on his time with the Thessalonians as an apostle. He says, For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pe- pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you. As a nursing mother, there's the word for nourishing, tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. So I think there's a lot of ways to think about this, right? Obviously, we eat to supply nutrients to our body, Um, We care for our bodies, but think about even like getting sick and how we want attention when we're sick. Um, I've heard many times now people who needed to go to the hospital and because hospitals are so overloaded, they're not able to receive care. They get very, very frustrated because when somebody is sick, they want care. They need help, right? So when we're sick, we want somebody to care for us, to give us attention, to give us what we need, right? 
Um, I remember, um, I haven't used a UPS analogy in a while. I've been trying to cut down on those. But in UPS, there was one time where I was horribly sick. I think I had like the flu. But on the management side of UPS, you were basically supposed to come in no matter what. And the higher ups would come in when they have the flu, which means that me being lower than like someone in corporate, you know, I'm expected also to come in. So, you know, you see people like barely moving and still trying to manage employees. Anyway, so I came in one time when I was horribly sick and I was really frustrated. Um, I had to sit on something. I literally could not stand up and my boss wanted me to manage an entire area of employees and we were understaffed and uh, I kind of felt like I was expected to actually step in and do hard work uh, that I just physically was not capable of doing. And I really wanted my boss just to understand my condition and send me home, right? Um, which didn't happen, by the way. Um, but when we're sick, we want care. We want consideration. And it's not just an easy fix, but we just want someone to understand where we are and be patient with us and just give us a break, right? So just like a, a mother tenderly cares for the needs of her young toddler, her baby, husbands are called to tenderly care for the needs of their wives and to give those things deep understanding and consideration. I want to look at Psalm 18 briefly for the rest of the lesson. Um, so just like I said, you can, I think, learn about how to be a husband from the whole Bible, actually, as long as you're recognizing the character of God within it. Uh, I think the Psalms is an amazing book for marriage and for husbands. The psalmists are weak in distress. They need understanding. They need comfort. They need God to see their pain. They need God to solve their problems, to lead them, to show them the way, to make it easier for them to submit, to take care of the things that are hindering the relationship. And in this dependence, we see God, I think, show many lessons through the language of the psalmists on how we should treat our wives. I want to start at the beginning of the psalm. We're going to get to verse 35. But I want to start from the beginning, and I think it's going to heighten what we're going to see in Psalm 18, verse 35, when we get there. Look at the beginning of the psalm before verse 1. For the choir director, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of the song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies from the hand of Saul. And he said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. And then he gets into a scenario where the cords of, of death encompassed him, the torrents of ungodliness terrified him. Verse 6, in my distress I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple and my cry for help before him came into his ears. And David gives this incredible illustration of the earth is shaking, fire comes out of God's nostrils. He literally rips the heavens open and flies down and rescues David and spreads the waters where he's drowning and puts him in a high and safe position. In verse 1, husbands are called to provide strength to their wives. Husbands are called to give strength to their wives to endure difficulties. David lived a life of hardship. God didn't just fix all of his problems. David didn't write a psalm and magically his life was at peace, right? 
Just like his husbands, we can't solve all of the problems. And sometimes, just like David running from Saul, there might be problems where as we are listening, wisdom may demand, this is a problem that we don't need to do anything to solve. I just want to help be there for you to give you strength to deal with this right now, right? David found that God gave him strength. He was a shield a rock. Husbands need to be a rock of stability for their wives. And again, we can't take God's place. I, I, I just, I cannot be a rock as God is, right? So it's not as if we are thinking we're some catastrophic failure that is unrepairably able to be fixed if we see ourselves falling short. It's that this should draw inspiration for change and growth, right? Um, I want to look at now, before I go to the next point, let's, let's go closer to verse 35. Um, look at verse 30 and look at through verse 36. As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? Who for, and who is a rock except our God? The God who girds me with strength and makes my way blameless. He makes my feet like hind's feet and sets me upon my high places. He trains my hands for battle so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have also given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand upholds me. And this is one of my favorite statements in the psalm. God, David has been reflecting all these powerful things. God literally ripped the heavens open to deliver him. God gives him like superpowers. You know, he's like, I can leap over a wall. I can bend a bow of bronze. God has so much power, so much power to hurt David, to destroy, to annihilate, to hinder. And yet in verse 35, everything that David could say after these reflections on God's incredible power and your gentleness makes me great. You enlarge my steps under me and my feet have not slipped. Something I think is important about this and this is just, I think, a truth of marriage. Marriage gives the greatest opportunity for anger, for frustration, for tension, for blowing up, losing control of yourself. Um, and that, that is just, that's a reality we need to deal with. God controls his wrath and he funnels the strength that he has to gently handle, lead, guide, help, it's a husband's gentleness that makes their wife great. And I love verse 32 through 34. I know it's kind of strange, like David, I don't think ever literally bent a bow of bronze, but it's that God overwhelmingly is equipping David to accomplish his role. If a husband fulfills his role, it equips a wife to fulfill her role in an overwhelming way, just the goodness of that relationship, again, is, is unsearchable, unthinkable, uns, uh, unthinkable and unsearchable. Um, but verse 35 again. God handled David more than with great power to destroy, with the gentleness to give stability, to give help, to give comfort, and to give strength. And what we see with David throughout the Psalms, God accepts the work of his weaknesses. God sees his needs and he deals with those needs. He sees the feelings of the psalmists and he accepts them. He works with them. You see the grittiest emotions in the Bible in the Psalms. Um, 
A couple of things to end this sermon that I've heard from older, uh, older men that um, I really appreciate. Uh, there's an older man who said in a Bible class on husbands, remove from your vocabulary ever telling your wife you should not feel that way. Um, how a wife feels is simply a reality that we need to deal with and see it as something to adapt around and to nurture and to cherish, right? So I, I appreciated the brother saying that. I, I just, I really think that that is uh, coming from older wisdom. Never, ever say you should not feel that way. Just forget it. Lastly, for God to focus on David, for Jesus to focus on his disciples, for us to focus on our wives the way we must, we need to learn to let go of lesser things that get in the way. To illustrate this, um, I don't think I've ever done this before, but you know, uh, I, I try to listen to other sermons um, from older brethren um, to think through subjects that I feel like I just don't understand very well. And I literally ripped an illustration straight from this brother's sermon so I just want to read it to you. Um, it may seem kind of silly, this illustration, but this, this I thought, illustrated this, this so well. And he was talking about a husband needing to love his wife more than other hobbies, personal pursuits, career. So I just encourage you to listen. Her name is Beth. She was driving a classic MG sports car, very classic car, very expensive convertible, a true collector's item. The car was her husband Jim's dream car, so she always was a little nervous when driving it. One evening she was driving and saw a blur of color out of the corner of her eye, and before she could consider what she was doing, she swerved to miss a boy on a bicycle and drove into the side of a large gray pickup truck. While she was still in shock at what happened, she heard the man from the truck ask, Hey lady, are you all right? And a couple men helped her get out of the car, helped her to the curb, and she sat on the curb uh, trembling like a leaf. Uh, she said, I'm fine, just let me sit here for a minute. She was thinking about Jim, his car, his dream car. While she was waiting for the police to get there, she was thinking about how excited Jim was to get that car. He had waited, or he had wanted this car since he was just a boy. It was a rare treasure. He had spent countless Saturdays on the car, fixing and polishing it. He knew every bolt, every spot of chrome. She wasn't worried about his wrath because he was a gentle and loving man. She dreaded the hurt and anguish she was going to see in his face when he would hear the news. And that was her fear, worse than if he got angry and yelled at her. She thought, thank God I'm not hurt, but I'm worried about telling him. Her head was bent down, sitting on the curb, and she saw the black boots of a police officer walk up to her. She looked up and he asked to see her driver's license and insurance. She walked to the car to get her purse and reached into the glove compartment to get the insurance package. She gave the officer her license and opened the plastic package containing the insurance papers. And to her surprise, on top of the insurance papers was a white envelope with her name on it. And it read, Dear Beth, if you're reading this, you've probably been in an accident. Don't worry. I pray that you're all right. And just remember, it's you that I love. Signed, Jim. One of the amazing things about God's love for us, think about the cross, Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus was treated as a lesser thing. God is willing to give up anything, and it's treated as a lesser thing, right? Oh, what love. As husbands, 
We need to learn to let go of lesser things. If it gets in the way of the relationship, it's gone. It's nothing. Because our wife, God commands us to make her a treasured priority. And it's a discipline, but it's a discipline that requires humility and faith. Um, I hope that these things have been helpful and encouraging. Um, It's a high calling. And like I said, I don't think any of us are making it out of this sermon alive. Um, And so I just encourage you, um, dwell on these things and, and just strive to make it more of a meditation and concentration and conversation in your life. And God will help us. If there's anything we can do for you um, to meet your spiritual needs, this is a time we set aside as we sing the invitation song, as we stand and sing our invitation song.